1: Welcome to Everyday Theology, where we don't tell you what to believe or why to believe it, but rather explore our Christian beliefs and why they matter for us in relation to God, to creation, and to others. My name is Aaron Ross. All right, today on the podcast, we have with us Caitlin Curtis. Uh, Very excited to have Caitlin with us. So thanks so much for being with us.
2: Yeah, thank you.
1: Um, I've got with me as well, Ben. Ben is back again, yes. a couple miles down the road from me. <laughs> no, nowhere near me. Um,
0: I'm actually sitting in his driveway recording. No, I'm kidding.
1: Oh, that would be that would be odd because I'm looking at my driveway right now. To be honest, <laughs> uh, I looked out there. I was like, "Where are you, Ben?" Um, Uh, With us, with Caitlin Curtis, she is an author and a speaker dealing with ideas on identity and belonging. She's got a new book coming out, and by the time that this airs, uh, her book will be out. It's called Native, Um, but we're going to have a conversation with Caitlin today on Uh, an idea of why identity matters within our Christian faith. Um, And so, Caitlin, if you wouldn't mind introducing yourself to our listeners, they get to know you a little bit more and kind of get to know your background and why you even have an ability to speak into such an issue.
2: Yeah, thank you. Um, Yeah, so um, I am, like you said, I'm an author, a public speaker, um, a poet. Um, I've been writing since... Well, I've been writing my whole life, really, but um, blogging, I started blogging when my first son was born in 2011, and so I've been writing now for quite a few years and um, just started writing books in the last few years, and I write online for Sojourners, um, which is a great place to kind of write on these tough conversations, so I've I've really loved that. Um, I grew up in um, Oklahoma and New Mexico, and I am a citizen of the Potawatomi Nation, and I'm also the the best way I describe it is I, I mixed ethnicity so I'm white but I'm also Potawatomi and so um, dealing with those identities and then growing up Southern Baptist and being just mm. all in with <laughs> oh the, interesting yes yeah. with the, the Southern Baptist Church and um, being a pastor's kid so my my father left when I was nine and he worked for the Bureau of Indian Affairs which is um, for people who don't know, it's Native American police officers. And it's just a really complicated institution. Um, but so I grew up, you know, being around other indigenous people. And then we moved to Missouri when I was eight, and he left when I was nine. And so, um, you know, had a few years of being a nine year old without a a dad, you know, went to visit him, things like that, back and forth. But um, then my my mom got remarried to a, a pastor, was my stepdad. And Um, wonderful man, Southern Baptist pastor, you know, in the little town that we lived in in Missouri. And so, you know, the church became my safe place. And, um, but at, at the same time, that also meant I became fully assimilated into whiteness and into, you know, as much, um, conservative sort of evangelical Christianity as I could. And so I really was all of that, you know, the purity movement, um, accountability groups, doing evangelism, door-to-door evangelism, all just all of it. I was all of it, you know? <laughs> I was the poster yeah. child. Um, and so in college, I kind of just started, you know, like we all do, asking those questions of the container that I grew up with, if you want to call it that. And so at the same time, you know, also kind of realizing, and especially when I had kids that, you know, oh gosh, like who I am as a Potawatomi person, like it still matters. And maybe it matters even more than I realized growing up. And so, um, you know, and I want it to matter to my kids and, you know, things like that. So then starting to, as I was deconstructing my faith, kind of also decolonizing and understanding that if I'm going to question my faith, that also means I have to question these systems that I participate in and live in. And so it's been quite a journey ever since then. And, and, you know, writing is the way that I process, of course I'm an author. And so, it just naturally has been part of everything. So then um, just realizing that there's actually, this is a conversation that a lot of people may want to have. And um, so I've been really honored that I get to share this journey and and these experiences with other people um, through my books and through my publications. So yeah. So yeah, uh, yeah, that's it. Um,
0: Caitlin, let me ask you this. What town in Missouri did you live?
2: I grew up in Joplin.
0: Joplin, okay, that's different. We were in Fenton, which is kind of like Sunset Hills, just right outside of St. Louis.
2: Oh, okay, yeah, I have family all all around, so we've definitely been in St. Louis a lot.
0: We passed her there for ten months, and then we okay. came back. Then we came back to South <laughs> Florida. So
2: ten months, and it
0: was the worst winter in thirty six years. It is cold in St. there. Louis.
2: It is so oh, cold there.
0: Uh, th- this one, we had uh, four storms. Within two months, and it was like fourteen inches, twenty inches. It was crazy, but um, oh, but I'm glad Lord. I'm back in Florida. Yeah, it was <laughs> that's
2: that's my only memories of, of uh, Missouri. That's hilarious. That's it. <laughs> I've got Aaron, none. Take it so
0: away.
1: so <laughs> <laughs> when so I my question for you, especially as someone, because you know, as as the listeners know, I'm very much white. Like Amen. grew up in... in, in and <laughs> and. Thank you, Ben. Thank you.
0: Um,
1: so, so that kind of, kind of cultural kind of upbringing, you know, me being the, the son of a pastor in a Pentecostal, um, a historic Pentecostal denomination, uh, I was fully ingrained in that reality. Mm Um, Which, which was very white. I think, you know, kind of the history of Pentecostal movement is that it really started as a very diverse group of people. Um, but I guess by the time I was a kid, it was very, very white. And, um, so I, I've never had to butt up with the reality of kind of this trying to find my, like recognize my identity in the different spheres because it just kind of has been my identity. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and that has been my culture. So when did you first start kind of recognizing maybe some tension in this, uh, being, being a native and, and yet you're in this kind of non-native reality?
2: Yeah, I think, um, so, you know, all through, um, adolescence high school, like I did not, um, notice that because I think I was so kind of just assimilated, like, and I was, you know, I felt safe in the church, I felt like that was the place where my identity could be. And so that was just what I was, I didn't, you know, I didn't have any desire to really know more about what it means to be Potawatomi. Um And like I said earlier, really in college, and when I started when I had my kids, that was like, you know, just those moments, I don't know, having kids kind of peels back layers of you. And I think that I started transitioning and changing even just in the way that like I embodied who I am. Um, I don't know if that makes sense, but just like, I think that it was already starting to work its way out in me and in ways that I didn't understand. Um, but then it was when we moved to Atlanta, was really this, um, moment where kind of this light bulb went on for me. We were actually hiking, um, our family was hiking at a place called Sweetwater Creek. Um, and we live on um, Muskogee Creek land. And so we were, um, we were out hiking in this area and, um, I had a one-year-old and a, let's see, they would have been like one and three and the one-year-old I needed to nurse him. And so we're like walking and there's nowhere to sit down. And so I just like turn him sideways and start feeding him awkwardly. And we're just like walking through this path. And, and all of a sudden, like I had this, really deeply tethered memory of my ancestors who, um, we had a, our tribe has a forced removal. So we we were removed, a group of us were removed from Indiana at gunpoint and forced to walk to Kansas. So we, it's called the trail of death and it happened in 1838. And so we had a group of us had to walk to Kansas. um, and then a group of us ended up in Oklahoma and that's where I was born. Um, and so I just, in this moment, it was like, you know, what I really feel is just like my ancestors were coming to meet me to say, like, this is what we did. We held our babies and we walked and we marched. You know, um, against all the odds that were against us, we did this, and you're doing it. You know, that kind of just like deep um, sense of who I was in a way that I never really experienced before, and so it it literally just like it was just so such a stark reality in that moment that it just like changed everything and I got into the car that day and I like wrote and wrote and wrote like an essay and then from then on it was just like every day waking up and asking like what have i been missing what it what has been taken away from me that I didn't notice or what has been silenced that I need to give voice to and so ever since then it's just like peeling back those layers and trying to understand this and what it means um yeah so it's just been a, a wild ride, really. I, I think
1: a lot of, um, a lot of, so, uh, trying to formulate this can be a little bit tough, right? Like, I think a lot of people might hear something like that and, and this kind of like idea of being connected to like kind of the, the family history or the history of a group or the, the history, like, I think for a lot of people, they kind of go, I, I don't understand, right? Like, yeah. especially for someone like me, you know, I think of my history, but my history goes basically as far back as my grandparents, right? Like, I'm not connected. I don't feel connected in that way. Um, yet as a Christian, very often what we do is we read the biblical text and we find ourselves connected to the characters mm-hmm. and their story being our story. And that's okay. But when it comes to kind of family history, we kind of like reel back. Why do you think that might be? And how do you kind of help explain that reality to people who may not have that cultural, uh, historical connection?
2: Yeah. Oh, I think that's really hard. I think there are a lot of layers to that. Um, because- As an indigenous person, my problem even with that kind of stuff is white people claiming to be native and having this romanticized version of like, I had a, you know, I had a Cherokee great grandma. And I get that kind of stuff all the time when I meet people because they want to connect somehow to um, our identity. And so there there there's so many layers to all of this. Um, And I... (sighs) it's hard it's a really hard conversation right because a lot of people don't know who their ancestors were they don't know where they come from and i think that's why things like dna tests have been so popular right because we long to know more about who we are that's a natural longing i think for everyone is we maybe in adulthood we realize like i would like to understand myself better i want to know what my identity is for what does it mean you know um and it's so layered and I don't know, you know, for me, there is this, what I write about in my new book is this idea of returning to ourselves, returning to, you know, for me, it's like returning to the land, like returning to the Great Lakes, where Potawatomi people were removed from. So a physical place of returning has been really important for me, but also like this spiritual home of returning to a place in ourselves where we are free from if you want for me, colonization or patriarchy or you know, misogyny, like these um systems that we've created that at least for women and also for men I think, but for women like steal parts of our identity. So there's this Mm. spiritual returning to ourselves. And so sometimes I would rather describe it in that way because a lot of people can't just like be like, well, I wanna know who my ancestors were and go where they went. Or you know what I mean? Like there there's not always a physical place for that. And so I also want to describe those things as a a spiritual sense of like what does it mean to be you and how do you embody who you are, if that does that make sense? Mm. Yeah.
0: yeah. And so when when you um, mention a little bit of the decolonizing and a little bit of the kind of like deconstructionism, um, um, it kind of bear into mind what. Uh, in 1903 in the book uh, The Souls of Black Folk that was written by uh, William Edward B. Du Bois um, when he introduced something called the double consciousness that Mm -hmm. African Americans at that time, right, because of the racialized oppression and the disvaluation of the white dominated society were feeling, here they were, it was like they were still human, they were still part of this humanity but yet because they were black, they weren't really fully assimilated into, into the culture mm-hmm. and it created this double consciousness. Um, I'm wondering for you, and maybe even for me as a Latino, right? I think that when you said, you know, for me, it was when I had my first child that I was really able to, you know, be on this journey of finding my identity. Um, can you share with our listeners maybe who are in a similar path right now that you were, or, you know, a few years back, That maybe they find themselves where they're Latino or they're Asian American,
2: Mm -hmm.
0: um, that where they find themselves in America, assimilated to a culture, but at home, they might speak a different language. At home, they might come from a different part of the world, but yet they go to school in a predominantly North American context.
2: Yeah, totally. Yeah, um, it is so... um... (laughs) complicated and I don't think that we really talk about it enough either you know like all these layers of identity and what that means like like I didn't know that my tribe had our own language until I was an adult and the fact that like I didn't even know that you know um and so over the last few years like trying to learn I'm learning our Potawatomi language online through my tribe and trying to teach it to my kids but like isn't it wild that I didn't even know we had one? And I don't even know if anyone in my family knew we had one. Like, and that, isn't that like, it's, it's just fascinating to me that um, at least in indigenous culture through boarding schools and through so many things that have just erased culture. Like we, we don't even have knowledge of who we are. Like, and we have to dig, you know, we have to really return and dig to find it. Um, But yeah, there's this, um, these realities that, that we fight so much. And, um, I think a a lot about, um, like gaslighting and so many things that happen for people who have these dual realities of like, when is it okay to be me? And when is it not? And, um, and, and the truth is that there is so much, um, gray area and like liminal space where it's not very comfortable. Like we live in that so much. Like I wrote, um, I wrote a, uh, in my book, I wrote a letter to people who are mixed, like anything, mixed culture, mixed ethnicity, mixed race, you know, I wrote a letter to mixed people because um, in so many of our conversations, we don't talk about those realities of people who are, whether you're white passing or not, or whether you're whatever, like how we move through spaces in our life where we don't, we don't always know who to be. And so we're like constantly having to untangle these complexities about identity and who is safe for us and who's not safe for us like it's exhausting right and it like stirs up trauma like all the time um and the hard thing about that is that we have to decide at some point like what spaces are safe for me and what aren't and so like we um our family actually stopped going to church um I guess it's been four or six months ago because we realized that I I felt like every week I went into this place, but I left something at the door. And, um, as much as I wanted, wanted to embody all that I am, like I knew that in that place, like part of me cannot exist. And so we ended up leaving and that comes to those questions of like, can the church truly decolonize? But we were going to a, you know, predominantly white middle-class church in Atlanta, you know, and just like realizing week after week that, not all of me can exist in that place. And so we had to make a decision. You know, if I can't exist as all of me, neither can my kids. And, you know, and so like, that's so hard that we are forced to make those decisions and um, and choose like who our safe people or our safe spaces are going to be. But I think that we walk in those liminal realities all the time.
1: Yeah, that's that's a that's a tough reality, I think. And it's one that is maybe easy for me to kind of like, again, as someone who that is my culture that I really don't have to check anything at the door, um, when going to church in that kind of cultural sense that it's hard for necessarily someone in my reality to understand, Um, And I think that is the beauty of kind of trying to listen to the stories of those who are um, struggling with that kind of reality of postcolonial, you know, again, it's, it's this, it's hard for people who actually are in that majority culture to say to someone who's not in the majority culture, you should just be fine with this. Mm-hmm. This is just okay. Um, you should just kind of accept this the way it is. And you, and especially when it comes to church, I think we sometimes might say, and you have to do this because it's church and you have to come here.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: Um, yeah. Um, but can I, um, uh, Caitlin, um, just make sure that um, I'm defining this right Yeah. Um, to get to, um, you know, I just want to set you up uh, a little bit here in that deconstruction is when we talk about deconstruction, um, right? I believe Jacques Derrida says it best. He goes, it's a respect, right? It's a respect for the other. So when you're talking about deconstructing the North American, maybe theology or the church customs or traditions, what we're saying is we, you know, we respect kind of like what has been done. We respect others, right? We're respectful yeah. in our affirmation of the other, right? And the way, the reason we, we, why we respect the other is because we want to delimit the narcissism of ourselves, right? Because all of us can, can be a little bit narcissistic and think it's about us. Yeah. But it's a way how to be Christ-like in creating space for the other to be themselves. Yeah. Right. It's a it's a good way to start to think about our institutions and our traditions and our communities, justice and religion in a way where the other is put before ourselves, before mm-hmm. our self-interest. And so when you say that um, about the church, what I'm hearing you say is. Um, and I'm trying to clarify for for our listeners is maybe that the community that you were part of was not allowing you to express and be yourself fully.
2: Yeah, yeah, right? and that's not every church, you know. But that's right. just we've not found that yet. And I know that there are people working toward that. You know, I'm friends with those people. Um, but yes, yes, you're right.
1: And and I think that's a that's a great place for us to kind of say and and to some degree, like this is something that churches have to be very mindful of
2: uh-huh.
1: right is not not forcing people to check cultural identity at the door and and actually allow people to express that so maybe in some way you know in what way is that possible? Like, what do you see as the kind of like the possibility of that? Like, if you were to say, if I could find this kind of church, this is the church um, that would allow me to not check your, you know, not allow you to check your cultural identity at the door.
2: Mm -hmm. That's a good question. And I think about that (laughs) a lot and (laughs) I am not fully sure because uh, so I, I used to be a worship leader. So, I mean, I was I've been fully immersed in the church for so long that I think also I needed this break away from it to ask, like to ask that question, because I have never really had to ask that, you know, um, I've never really had to step completely out of those contexts to say, okay, if, if this isn't working for us anymore, then what does it mean moving forward? Um, you know, things like solidarity are important to me and having tough conversations are important to me. How do I find a space that does that and does it well? I think it just depends on the church and I would love to find one one day, you know, but um, until then, it, it, I feel like so much of my spiritual community comes from online spaces. You know, I feel like so much of what's like helping me on this journey right now is just those, those people and those conversations um, and so it's hard, it's really hard to answer because I have to keep doing this work of breaking the, those ideas and those things down to really, to get clarity enough to ask like, what, what would that even look like for me? Does that make sense?
1: Um, yeah, and I, I think especially it, it may make sense as well in terms of like what maybe we're going through as a church today, yeah. uh, yeah. with, with this reality that we're not able to have services where we can all be together, uh, and express in that way to which, uh, and I say that, you know, for anyone who might be listening to this sometime in the future, who knows when, you know, we're talking about kind of coronavirus and COVID-19 and safer at home orders and that kind of stuff that we are finding our community, our spiritual community in different ways, um that we haven't been able to use that we haven't been able to find before haven't been able to engage with before and I think that is you know a challenge I think that you know in trying to think of post a post-colonial church, a church that is actually saying that that it's not controlled by a dominant culture depending on which dominant culture it may be whether that's white dominant culture in America Latino or culture, right like how do we create that safe space how yeah. do we create places for people to come at, you know it's like the church slogan that i grew up hearing come as you are unless it's this or this or this or this and yeah, then leave exactly. that outside and then we can deal with the rest of it right, right. um what other kind of, I would kind of just ask, cause it's just curious, what other things do you find, especially as you've been going through this journey that you have, you have kind of been surprised by that has kind of, whether it's kind of from your book or just kind of like living kind of in this journey of reconnecting to that kind of cultural sense of yourself, what other surprises have you found along the way?
2: Um, um, I think that uh, this is hard to explain, but um, there there is a way that in which we kind of shut off our availability to our own historic trauma. We can in ways we kind of shut that off sometimes. So for me, you know, even though I probably I live with that trauma, I was not as aware of it as I am now. And, um, it's been interesting to come to that reality of these traumatic things that have happened throughout history or even to my own family that, that do affect me. And then to actually like face my own trauma and name it and like, see it as it is in my life and like, see that what, what are, what trauma do my children have? And, you know, and, um, so the work of like identifying those things like that, when you say it, that makes sense. Like, of course that's going to happen, but it still surprises me often that, um, like even writing my book was difficult to write it because I was, I was leaning back into experiences and, and things that have happened and continue to happen to me that are traumatic and, um, trying to figure out ways to accurately like name those things so that people can understand, even if they're not indigenous, so they can understand like the gravity of that, um, has always been surprising. Um, and then also just the depth of the beauty of learning my own language or learning our tribe's stories like those things that just surprise me by their beauty all the time um always surprises me like it's always just amazing <laughs> you know to come to step into that and just be able to like breathe a little
1: it it's it's fascinating to me um hearing this again as someone who again is white to to try to put myself in that place without kind of doing violence to someone else's, um, identity. Uh, because the best I can do and, and as I'm learning the best that I can ever do is listen to the stories of those who actually have that identity that have that culture and learn, um, learn not to try and force myself into those stories or Mm -hmm. that identity. Um, because the more, the more I feel like we try to do that, the more we end up just kind of being violent towards someone else's or assuming that we understand, Mm -hmm. assuming that we can, we can get it. Like assuming that, you know, thinking of you assuming like, Oh, well, you know, Caitlin, she should definitely like still go to church because there's this and this and this like like forcing a reality of saying, well, you just have to look at it like I look at it, and because you know the way I look at it is right.
2: Yeah, I've had those it, conversations <laughs> with people.
1: <laughs> what sure. do you say to people who maybe just haven't gotten to a place where they can kind of understand that reality when it when you're trying to help people process? um a sense of of how do we recognize that people have different cultural identities and different kind of spaces that they, they grew up in what what are things that you've found have been helpful along the way in those conversations
2: um well i write the way that i write is through storytelling and i think that what is so powerful about being a storyteller is that you can draw people in through those experiences like you were just saying when we tell our stories to each other even our you know, our stories of trauma, or our stories of resilience, or just these naming these parts of history—like um, telling our stories to each other—is a powerful way to draw draw us into each other's experiences. Um, to a certain extent, there may be people who will never understand how to not take over in those spaces, but I think that even just reading books by. Um, by people who are different than you and trying to understand that, especially people who come from, um, cultures that have been oppressed, you know, like reading those stories and trying to just sit and listen, like you're saying is really hard work. Um, but that is what I encourage people so often is read the books, like read the books by the people who are writing them, like by those people, not someone else writing about them, like listen to it from the words of those people who are experiencing it. Um, yeah. And sometimes it just takes time for people to get it. Like sometimes it is just not something that people can get until that, that reality comes to them in the right kind of way at the right kind of time. And so you can't always force it like for people to understand. Um, right. But, you know, I think words are powerful. So I always point people back to words um, to help them understand or to gain perspective.
0: Right. So when you um, when you talk about those books um, or the different voices, um, that's something that I try to do in my classroom is to yeah. make sure that it's not just a predominantly one voice of one culture. Um, yeah. There's a book that we used in our evangelism class this semester um, written by Elizabeth uh, Frazier-Conde, Conde Fraser, excuse me, um, and um, two other gentlemen. I can't remember the names, but it's called uh, A Many-Colored Kingdom, and it talks Mm. about being a socially, culturally sensitive minister. Um, And so just you're right, just hearing the voice of of the different people of the Asian-American context for one of the authors and then hearing from a predominantly Caucasian, uh, you know, uh, person who worked in the inner city. Um, in a more under-resourced area and help those students develop. And then you had a Latina woman talking about how she was raised. And so it was good for my students to get those perspectives. So I agree with you. My question that maybe a listener will have is, who are some authors that you recommend, number one? And number two, what have been the biblical stories that you have used to um, expand maybe somebody's Eyes and mind into embracing other cultures.
2: Yeah. Um, first, some of my some of my favorite books just lately that I've been reading. Um, one of them is um, "Women Who Run with the Wolves" by Dr. Clarissa Pinkola Estes, um, and she uses like stories to explain trauma and to explain. It's for it's a book for women, but um, it's just it's just a gorgeous book. Um, and it's one of my favorites. Um, the second part is this has been an interesting journey for me because I grew up being so obsessed with the Bible and with quiet times, but like, didn't really learn. I learned, right. I learned these narratives through, I even learned the anti-Semitism that comes in so much of American Christianity, but I learned those narratives just through whiteness. Right. And so now trying to do this work but also like understand um the biblical narrative like decolonizing the ways that i understand the bible and so i've been really careful to not try not using it a lot because i want to understand it better before i try to use it if that makes sense just trying to be really careful about that and learn from others before um before i use it um and i'm in no way you know a biblical scholar anyway um and so a lot more of my work just comes from the reading and writing the the writing of others who do that kind of work understanding the way that they understand it you know but um yeah i just am not in a place where like that um is a part of the work that i do in just for me
1: i think i think it's really important um kind of mentioning that is the fact that i think that a lot of A lot of Christians, and this can take us into a whole other rabbit hole that we don't have time for, but this kind of reality that a lot of Christians don't think about the way that they use scripture. Yes. And the way that we use scripture can often be uh, uncritically harmful of others. Yeah. And it's because we haven't taken enough time to listen Before even like when I was, you know, a kid, before I was told, well, just read it for yourself, you'll get it.
2: Right, exactly.
1: Um, And, you know, that that brings us to a whole other realm of kind of hermeneutics, how should we read the Bible, what are authentic and faithful ways to read the Bible, and what are healthy ways to read the Bible, um, especially in light of other cultures. And, And I can give a kind of a quick recommendation for some who might be interested in that. You know, Michael Gorman edited a great... Great book called Scripture and its Interpretation um, in which the back half of the book is written by people of different uh, cultures and ethnicities and races talking about how there is a Latina Latina interpretation of Scripture, as that's an great. Asian American interpretation of Scripture, or an African or even African American is two different kind of interpretations mm-hmm. of Scripture, which really lends itself towards saying, "Hey, let's stop and, and listen to other other readings that may not be predominantly from my culture." Right, um, Caitlin, it's been wonderful having you with us. Thank you so much um, for partaking in this conversation with us, maybe helping our listeners along this kind of journey, um, of faith and along the journey of thinking about others in that journey, uh, and how others may, may look at scripture. Others may kind of identify in their identity and why that matters. Um, if you wouldn't mind telling our listeners, um, about your upcoming book and where they can kind of connect with you and find out more about you.
2: Yeah. So my book is called Native Identity, Belonging and Rediscovering God. And it's out May 5th. Um, And yeah, it's basically about, you know, so much of the stuff we've talked about today, just asking these questions about um, faith and spirituality and identity and how those overlap. And, you know, it's written, it's a memoir. So it's written through my own experiences and stories, but hoping that as people read it, they can, you know, reflect on their own identity and their own stories and kind of ask some of those hard questions. But we do it together. Like we're all asking hard questions. We're all struggling to know ourselves and to love each other better. And that's it, you know? So it's just um, yeah, an extension of that, that journey.
1: Wonderful. Well, where can people connect with you if they, you know, get the book and they want to kind of reach out or just kind of see what's going on? Where can people connect with you in that way?
2: Um, you can contact me through my website, caitlyncurtis.com. And then I'm also on, you know, Twitter and Instagram and Facebook Caitlin Curtis. You can find me there.
1: Perfect. Um, Caitlin, thanks again for being, uh, being with us. We really appreciated it. It's been an interesting time behind the scenes with the internet, uh, (laughs) kind of going out, you know, everyone is online right now all the time. Um, so always a little bit of a struggle, but thanks so much for struggling through that with us. And, uh, we hope to talk to you soon.
2: Thank you so much.